All right, we're back. Let's take a look back, uh, I think, 12 months ago to our chat down in Hollywood on no less than Hollywood Boulevard, the famous Musso Franks. I believe that was the first restaurant in Hollywood, still going strong this many years later. Mr. Lloyd and I were joined by a couple of our Hollywood correspondents, namely Bruce Bronstein and Gail Murphy. In addition to my personal assistant for this trip, Sharon Dial. I probably shouldn't ask this, but I can't resist. When, when, when Bruce and I chatted with Norman Corwin some years back, we, he talked about working with actors, working... You've, you've been on both sides of the camera, but... Um, he, he said that Richard Boone was an actor he just had trouble with, like TV's, TV's paladin. trouble with him. I wonder, wonder if you have any Richard Boones you worked with, people that were, were trouble to work with. You won't believe this, but I never had trouble with anybody. Wow. Okay. I just wouldn't hire them. <laughs> now, Hitchcock was interesting in this regard. Yeah. You couldn't have trouble with Hitch. He did not believe in confrontation. Okay. So the actor put your ass in the seat of the chair. <laughs> yeah. I was in the first shot that Hitchcock did with Ingrid Bergman in Spellbound. She was a psychiatrist. I was a patient. And she was at her desk and Hitch laid out a move. Whenever he did anything like that, he had something going on. It wasn't that move, it was the next one that you'd really be fascinated by. He had a move. So he's laying out the shot for Ingrid. He says, now at this point you move and the camera goes. She said, I don't see it that way. He just turned and walked away. <laughs> he got it right away. She got it. That there was no moving. You know my favorite story like that? Not the movies, though. Okay. The great star of the Yiddish theater in New York was a man named Morris Schwartz, who, by the way, when he tested for a movie called Mission for Moscow to play Stalin, I think, he did this test and he did a scene from King Lear, from the heat scene. And the middle of the scene, oh, blow winds, crack, blow your ch He looked in the camera and he said, this is not for commercialization. <laughs> well, I'll tell you my favorite Schwartz story, because okay. I think your audience should hear it. We're all ears. He was directing in the theater, and he had a wonderful actor named Michael Rosenberg, I think his name was, but he's brilliant. At a certain point, Schwartz was staging a scene, and he said, Rosenberg, on this moment you go stage left. Rosenberg stopped and said, I don't see it that way, Schwartz. Schwartz went silent. He walked to the left, came back to the center. He walked to the right, came back to the center. He then looked at Rosenberg. He said, Schwartz? You call me Schwartz? We have slept together? <laughs> <laughs> It's one of my favorite theater trips. By the way, absolutely true. It was told me by a guy who was in the company named Shelley Wilde, who was a, a, an actor in the company, a young actor, and then came out here and was an agent for a while. Well, I, I have to note, Mr. Lloyd, I was driving down yesterday, uh, National Public Radio's Talk of the Nation was talking about 
the importance of having empathy for physicians. And when I was getting my medical training, uh, St. Elsewhere, you were on the, on the cast, was a big hit on television, uh, good scripts, good acting. And, um, and I thought your character, Dr. Auslander, was such, he was such a kind and diligent man that you were, you were providing this role model for young physicians, even though you weren't being a doctor. We'd see you on the screen and go, that's really what we need to, need to do. And I was sort of wondering how you developed that portrayal, that from doctors you knew or just people you knew? I love Dr. Auslander. Uh, I should say I love St. Elsewhere. And I think when you mention all the things I've done uh, and all the directors and so forth, that ranks equally with them, whether it's feature films or theater. That series was remarkable, and the stars of it were the writers. They wrote brilliantly and dealt with subjects that, uh, and I'll get around to your question sooner or later, they dealt with subjects that had never been dealt before on television. AIDS, dyslexia, costs of medicine. Yeah. No one had ever done it that way. Yeah. And the humor of the show was remarkable. Most television dramas are unwatchable. But mm -hmm. that, that, that show, even as a medical person, that show was very watchable because it was accurate. I've had doctors tell me that as interns, mm -hmm. they were very influenced by that show, particularly the ethical quality. Of yes, it. yes. I found the character that as they wrote it, and I played it, very moving. And for the first time, I felt something of my own life in the character. Oh, I did in the theater when I played the fool to Calhoun's Leah. It was almost like a whole experience I went through with Lewis Milestone. But playing Auslander, they called on things in my life that they wrote into it. Plus the fact that they were wonderful people. I mean, Ed Flanders, who unfortunately committed suicide. Was, there was no finer actor in America than Ed Flanders. Mm -hmm. And to work with him, it would bring out a certain human recollection that only an actor of this exquisite talent that he had, with scenes which were really from your own life, which they somehow gathered, uh, I just can't say enough for that show. Denzel Washington, Howie Mandel, uh, Ed Begley Jr., I mean, uh, William Daniels, he had such a great cast. We had in the show Eric Lanneville, who was the, the, uh, a fellow uh, Afro-American, as well as Denzel. Eric Lanneville had made a lot of money on a show called Room 222. Yeah. He had been in it as a kid. And his parents took the money and bought one of these Hollywood courts where you have bungalows around a court. So he it was pretty good. Denzel used to call him the slumlord. <laughs> but Denzel was just coming out from New York. Yeah. The understanding of people that I thought was so remarkable. Well, when we talked last time, too, you mentioned about... about the Lunts being great actors, but not necessarily very good material. And I wonder, like St. Elsewhere had good acting and good material. What do you do sometimes when the material is thin? How do you... You go out and lay an egg. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, I have been the victim of this sort of thing. 
And you uh, just keep your eye on the check. <laughs> because there's, there's no way out. Oh, I've had that. Yes. Was there always someone you wanted to work with? They wanted to work with you, but it just never happened. You know, that's a fascinating question at this point in my life. After almost eight, about 80 years in the theater and show business, I can't remember whom I wanted to work with. I, I was. I can't remember a specific person because I was very lucky in the sense that working with Chaplin, working with Hitchcock, working with Wells, working with Jean Renoir, and in the theater, what more could I want? Also, as a very young actor, just starting with Kazan in a couple of shows, and uh, even beautiful directors who don't get as much publicity like Peter Weir, mm -hmm. who did Dead Poets Society, mm -hmm. which I love as a picture. Uh, I was very lucky. Mm -hmm. Something's happened to the culture, and it's in the movies. There's a negativism. Can I take this? There used to be, when I was a young actor in the 30s, a positive thing. It was the Great Depression. But we all felt we can make it better, we can improve. We can arrive at the other end in a very positive way. And I don't think that exists today. Mm. Now, a lot of things have happened in the world that have affected that. I mean, you have the constant presence of the bomb, and no, you don't know some guy's going to get hold of that thing and let it go. We live with that anxiety. Yeah. Uh, particularly if you have children or grandchildren. What world are they going into? That is reflected in the movies. I see notices for certain shows. Uh, I haven't been to New see the New York theater, but I'm sure there are exciting things there that I don't know about. You know, Bernard Shaw wrote a book years ago, The Modern Socialist Viewpoint about something or other. And Cushion says The Modern Homosexual Viewpoint about something. That is a play that received interesting but not totally favorable notices. It's too long and... Well, I got, I got a couple final questions. Yeah. You, you've had a chance to play these saintly figures, Dr. Ostlander and Terrible Villains, uh, the character in The Saboteur. Is there, do you like one more than the other, playing the good guy or the bad guy? Or are they, are they equally fun? No, as long as the part's good enough, I don't mind. <laughs> I don't mind playing. I played the fool in Leah, which is one of the great Shakespearean creations. I mean, I played Johnny Appleseed in New York on the stage. I uh, it's beautiful. So I've been lucky. Is there something in the pipeline for you? Now? Or are you retired? What kind of word is that to use at a I mean, relax. I, I mean, I mean, relax. I last Saturday. Who is this person? I meant to say relax. Now I'm a heavy. Yeah. I'm looking for something to do, and so I'm doing my own research at the moment. I've, interestingly enough, been reading some Shaw because I think his genius is extraordinary. I don't think we've recognized how great a man this was. I really do. I just Pygmalion, we watched the film version of it a month ago. My God, it's, it's so good. I saw it about a month ago, right after they ran, or maybe they ran My Fair Lady after it. Or did they run Pygmalion after My Fair Lady? But I'll tell you, the play is much better 
than the musical. I agree. As good as the musical is, the play's even better. Oh, much better. First of all, Audrey Hepburn isn't quite right. And even someone else was singing for her. I loved Audrey Hepburn. She was a beautiful, charming actress. But this wasn't her role. Wendy Hiller, God, she stood up there. She could have lifted the whole building. <laughs> she was wonderful. And Leslie Howard was very interesting as Higgins, uh, whereas uh, Rex Harrison, brilliant actor that he is, or was, he was unpleasant. <laughs> whereas Howard was that curious mixture of being a pedant, and he wanted the words exactly, but he, there was something you could understand the love story. How Audrey Hepburn never could have fallen for Rex, I don't know. <laughs> he wrote Pygmalion, sure, because he wanted to have a commercial success. He gave it to a manager in England named Sabirbam Tree. Sabirbam Tree was noted for the fact that he never read the plays he decided as actor-manager to do. He was known. He, he would just learn lines, but also he never could learn the lines. So he would have them written out, and if this is the stage, he'd have the first lines here, the second lines here, the third lines there, under pieces of paper or something. And as Shaw has written about this, this gave him a style of acting, which was, I say there, John, what is your symptom? Is that what you're thinking? So he was always going from paper to paper. When they had the first reading of Pygmalion, Mrs. Patrick Campbell, for, who played the part, when the scene comes where she sh throws the shoes at him, she threw, at the reading she took her shoe off and threw it at him, and Birbham, she said, I say, have I offended you? He hadn't read the script. <laughs> he was the actor manager. He didn't know the piece of business was in the play. <laughs> so you see, they had their ways. But I am playing around with thinking that this is an awfully good time to do Bernard Shaw's Doctor's Dilemma because it's about the problem of doctors and their fees and what is what is the real ethical motivation of a lot of them and the basic question where the leading man is a painter a genius and a total thief total blackguard do you save his life or someone who is a nice person but no talent? Do you save the talent who is a terrible person or do you save the nice person? That's the ethical question in the play. I think it's time for a play about doctors right now. And I'm going to try to get it done. I don't think I will, but I'm going to try. Well, if you need a technical consultant as a doctor, I'm available. Okay. For, for what it's worth. <laughs> there, was all, there also... There's other material that I would give anything to do, but uh, there's a play of Brett. I knew Brett. He lived out here. As a matter of fact, I w worked with him. And the theater I had with John Houseman, this coronet, we did the world premiere of Galileo, which starred Charles Lawton. And I mentioned Brett. There's a wonderful play which has too many actors. I don't know an old producer. Which is an adaptation of a restoration play 
called the recruiting officer. You know the play? No, no, but I've heard of it. Brett did an adaptation, but it's a perfect play to do now. Because it's about going out, it's about the, the British. It takes place in England. In, in the Restoration period, 1780-something. Okay. Corralling guys to send them to America to fight the colonists. <laughs> and it's a wicked, funny play. Let me just ask you one other thing. <laughs> on Hitchcock, one of the people who I think wrote some stories for it was a writer, Frederick Brown. Did you ever know him? Uh, oh, yeah, so he was a science fiction and mystery writer. Uh, okay. He was a wonderful writer. He, he, he didn't write for us. But they adapted. We uh, bought several of his stories. He was one of the best. Did you ever meet him? Or anything? <laughs> Never met him. Yeah. But Bob Block, who wrote Psycho, sure. we did meet, I did meet, he became a good friend, and he uh, wrote for us some originals. You mentioned uh, you used some Ray Bradbury, I guess, on your, on your Hitchcock a show. A lot of Ray Bradbury, he did. And uh, one, of, one of the things I'm very proud of is a Bradbury story I directed. And this guy, Pat Buttram, is at a carnival. You remember Pat Buttram? Sure. From TV, yeah. And he was real country. He was a sidekick. Real country. He goes to a carnival, and there a rather mysterious... I know you're not supposed to use the word midget, but small person, I'll be politically correct. Midget is someone's better word. <laughs> anyway, he sells him a jar, and it's full of mysterious things in it. And the midget says, you buy this jar, you can make anything happen that you want. Pat buys it. He then invites all the people in his neighborhood over to come and look in the jar. That's the name of the show, The Jar. To look in the jar, and make a wish about what they want. Even talk to someone out of their past, someone who's dead. Well, they do that. It's a lovely scene that... But there's a girl, Pat's wife, Colin Wilcox, who's really carrying on an affair with another guy. And she mocks the whole thing. And she eventually takes the thing off and scatters everything that was in it, which was old bed springs, pieces of a mattress, uh, just junk. It was a fake. But these people all had a faith in it. They'd watch it, they'd talk about their dead children, or talk to their dead children, etc. Now, she destroys this whole thing. Brilliant, brilliant performance by Colin Wilcox. She was the other girl in uh, Mockingbird. And Pat Buttram. Very offended. The next time, sure enough, he's put the jar together and he puts, the, invites the people. And they look in there. And a little child who's with them looking at this jar. And they suddenly see the curlers and the ribbons that the wife used to wear on a head. 
A heck in the jaw. You would find it a very romantic. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Lloyd. I think I just the work you did on television with Hitchcock and the movies and things. What would you recommend people check out of, of your work? Things that you're particularly fond of. It's hard for me to say. Uh, there's Saboteur, of course. There's Dead Poets Society. And, and then the picture I just told you about, the jaw. There were some people think uh, it's very unique in the history of television. The whole Hitchcock series, that I must have done well over 250 shows. Though. I cannot say any one thing. For example, in the theater with Olsen, I'd had this great success in Julius Caesar playing Sin of the Poet, and no one will ever see that. But I was delighted with, with what that was. So I gave, I was in a play out here years ago, Valpone, which, in which I played Mosca. I loved doing that, but no one else here. We're transitory figures. Admit it, folks, you don't get to hear stuff like this on just any old radio program. That's another reason, by the way, you should contribute if you've not yet done so to this station. You can go on the web, dial up fundraiser.kdbs.org and make a contribution. Like I said, if you hadn't done so already, doggone it, you need to. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Uh, we got plenty more in segment three. Don't go away. Don't go away.